Would you pray with me as we turn to God's word this morning? Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Would you stand for the reading of God's word this morning from Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. This is the parable of the Good Samaritan. I just want to say before I begin reading, uh, we never take for granted that for some of you, you might be really hearing this for the first time. That's great. Maybe some of you who are younger here are, are just kind of learning this story. This is one of those stories that if you've grown up in the church or grown up in the faith, you've heard many, many times, right? So there's always a tendency, at least for me, maybe you're a better person than me, but there's always a tendency for the brain to sort of switch off because, oh, I already know this story. But I want to encourage you to know that you are not the same person the last time you heard this story. God has done new things in your heart and in your life. So hear these words fresh from Luke chapter 10. An expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, what's written in the law? What do you read there? Jesus answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you've given the right answer. Do this and you will live. But wanting to vindicate himself, he asked Jesus, and who's my neighbor? And Jesus replied, well, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him and beat him. And they took off, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to that place and saw him, passed over to the other side. But a Samaritan, while traveling, came upon him, and when he saw him, he was moved with compassion. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, treating them with oil and wine. And then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii, giving them to the innkeeper, and said, take care of him, and when I come back, I will repay you whatever more you spend. Now, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said, go and do likewise. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. You can be seated. So today, as we go through the parables, it's the parable of the Good Samaritan. And like I said, many of you uh, have heard the story, so I know that many of you were, were probably thinking, as Luke 10 was read here, um, and, and, and I thought some of that as I started to look forward this morning to, I already know the point of the story, right? Were you thinking that? I, I get this one. I know the point of the story. Be the Good Samaritan. Help those who are in need, love the unlovely, go the extra mile. Some of you learned that in Sunday school. You remember flannel graph. I remember distinctly flannel graph of uh, the Good Samaritan. You get it. 
And you know what I say in some ways? You, you kind of do get it. I mean, that is the gist of what this scripture is talking about and requiring of you as a follower of Jesus Christ. Jesus says, go and do likewise. But I want to say, if that's all that we glean from this parable, you won't actually be able to be a good Samaritan. And to explain why, I'd like to to look at a few main parts of, of this text that are often overlooked at a cursory reading. I'm going to break the scripture into three main areas. First is the scribe's question, initial question about eternal life. And second is is the power of the parable uh, for this scribe, why it's a powerful parable. And then third, Jesus' command to go and do likewise and what that means for us as readers today. So first, the scribe's initial question. Uh, It says, an expert in the law stood up to what? Test Jesus. Now, was the scribe merely testing Jesus' knowledge to determine his competence or was he hostile? Was he seeking to trap Jesus into giving an unorthodox answer? Uh, Some suggest that the question um, asked about eternal life is actually a setup for the real question, which is the second question concerning the boundaries of the word neighbor. As we know well from other texts, the the law-abiding Jew was generally quite unhappy with Jesus' association with the wrong people in their mind, such as another famous Samaritan, the woman at the well that we read about in John chapter 4. Jews like this law-abiding scribe were quite sure that the Messiah, the Son of God, because of his holiness, would avoid association with people like Samaritans. So the question of neighbor is, is where the scribe knows that he's headed. And the first question about eternal life is, is the way to get there. The scribe turned to the law and asked, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And to this heavy question, Jesus Throws it back at him. He, he answers in a peculiar way. He turns the law back upon him. He says, what does the law say? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind. The scribe expected to, to recite this. He re- expected it to maybe be a trap for Jesus. But he adds that, love your neighbor as yourself. And to love your neighbor, is, this is a correct answer to, to the question of eternal life, by the way. And even though it's the right answer, I, I, I still find it a bit odd. Uh, the problem is that I, and I think most of us, we all want Jesus to say things that fit our systems. But he rarely does. So when asked how to inherit eternal life, I would have wanted Jesus to say, have faith and follow me. Or, this is the way that your life should look if you want to inherit eternal life. Or, Get fully involved in your church and youth group and children's ministry and come to church even when it's five below, right? But of course, Jesus does not say any of those things. It's our systems that need to be reorganized, not his. Because clearly, to love God with one's whole being and neighbor as self is not something less than faith. True faithful followers are those who know and love God as he's revealed in Jesus Christ. And then they choose to live in conformity with his character. It's not a static love. A love that's easily affirmed in in speech and rhetoric, but a love that's put into action. It's not a checklist of deeds, as if one could ever say, I've completed all that I need to do to inherit eternal life today. We must love God with each new day and act accordingly, putting our love 
into action. So the second part, the power of the parable. The scribe wanted to justify himself, so he asked, and who's my neighbor? Um, The real power behind this passage is the contrast between the initial question, what must I do to receive eternal life, and the answer to the second question, which is who is my neighbor? So in reply to this, Jesus begins with the parable of the Good Samaritan, seeking a clear chance to answer the question, who is my neighbor, while also explaining what it means tangibly to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. So a man is is ambushed by robbers on the road from Jerusalem to Jericho, a well-traveled road. He's left for dead. It's safe to assume within the context of scripture that this man was in fact a Jew who was beaten. And a priest passes by one of his own people who he's in charge of, and he lends no hand to him. Perhaps he's returning to Jericho after worship services in Jerusalem. A Levite does the same thing, leaving the man with no help. In Jewish law, it was considered unclean to touch a corpse. Perhaps they were afraid of that. Or to even touch anything that a corpse touches would make them unclean. So the priest and the Levite were clearly more concerned with cleanliness laws than they were with mercy and compassion. Then an unlikely source comes to the aid of this helpless man, a Samaritan. It's well documented that Samaritans and Jews have a strenuous relationship at best in the first century. It is fraught with racial tensions. They disagreed about religion and law and land and privilege, just to name a few. The Samaritan race had a sordid history. They were considered by Jews to be sort of half-breeds with the ancient Assyrians. They were racially muddled. They were inauthentic worshipers. They were unclean. They were renegade outsiders, and they should be avoided. In fact, the Jews of the second century B.C. went through the painstaking process of building a road on the other side of the Jordan River, so that they can completely avoid traveling through Samaria when traveling between Galilee in the north and Judea in the south, even though this new road was many, 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 many miles out of the way. This makes it all the more amazing that the Samaritan puts the differences aside, has pity on this Jew. He doesn't just help him, he goes the extra mile, and perhaps many, many miles with him, giving him time and money and health and resources, to this man who's in great need. And apparently the scribe understood this parable, right? He understood Jesus' words well because when he was asked which one of the travelers, of the three travelers, was the neighbor, the scribe correctly answers that it was the one who exhibited mercy. There's no real other answer, is there? So the original trap that was set for Jesus is blown apart by the story of the Good Samaritan. His question was, who is my neighbor? And if we think about it, the very question in itself implies that the scribe understood that there would be limitations to who his neighbor was. And from the standpoint of the law, there were limitations. But what Jesus is saying is that mercy trumps the law. The expert of the law was convinced that there were boundaries to who his neighbor could be. But what he got in response was a concrete and forceful image that destroyed any notion of boundaries for mercy and love for another person. Love does not allow limits on the definition of a neighbor. Mercy, justice, compassion, that trumps legalities every time. 
So the third part, what about our role? Jesus says, go and do likewise. Go and do likewise. As the scribe pondered what it would mean to go and do likewise, I think we're asked to do the same at the end of this parable. And I found this story to be important for many Christians today, a parable that has a lot of emotional pull and and a lot of honest conviction for people. Um, Why does this story seem to have so much force for Christians today? Why does it make it into every single Sunday school curriculum? Um, I think it's because it's a vivid image, and, and it is a parable where we are invited to ask ourselves, in the same situation, what would I do? Which one would I be? There's an art to putting ourselves in a story. Many have been quick to read this parable as an allegory, to assume that A in the parable of the Good Samaritan equals A in reality. The early church fathers uh, were notorious for this. They were thoroughly convinced that the Good Samaritan was Jesus and that humanity was the one who was dead on the side of the road, dying on the side of the road. Likewise, some in the evangelical world today are quick to assume that the modern Christian is the good Samaritan and the one left for dead is the unbeliever. It's a a call to to go and and seek the lost. And while both of these are maybe feasible or, or good things for us to think about, they are not helpful in our reading of this particular parable because truthfully, this text is not really a standard parable in that way. Though it is classified as a parable, it's actually more appropriately seen as an example story as evidenced by Jesus' concluding words, go and do likewise. Um, C.S. Lewis was once asked about uh, Paralandra, which was uh, the most celebrated book in his Space Trilogy. Not a lot of people talk about the Space Trilogy. It's an amazing trilogy of books. Um, And he was asked how Christians should read this. Um, The main character's name is Elwin Ransom and is clearly the Christ figure if you read read these books. how are we to understand the, the allegory of the fall, which is the crux of the entire trilogy? And, and here's how C.S. Lewis responds to this. He says, you're mistaken when you think that everything in the book represents something in the world. Things, that, uh, things do that in John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, but I am not writing in that way. I did not say to myself, let's represent Jesus as he really is in our world by the character Elwin Ransom. I said, let us suppose that there were a place like Paralandra, what would it look like for Christ to enter that world? And I think Lewis's answer in that explains why parables such as the Good Samaritan are so powerful for us. It's because it's not just a metaphor for life. It's, it's not an allegory. Just as Lewis vehemently rejected the idea that Paralandra, that, that trilogy is an allegory. Elwin Ransom is not Christ. If you read Lord of the Rings... Frodo, ba- uh, Frodo Baggins is not Jesus. He's not hope. It's not Western Christianity. He's the character in the story. The story stands on its own. And what we're forced to do then is to view it from the outside. Likewise, likewise I firmly believe that we are not in the story of the Good Samaritan. We are not the one who's left for dead on the side of the road, though that's an interesting thought. We're not the Good Samaritan, though he's a great example for us. We are outside of that story with the author Luke, with Jesus himself, and we must make our own judgments and say, what does it mean for me to go and do likewise? There are a lot of biblical scholars who don't want to accept this parable or or any of the parables as metaphorical. 
Uh, I mean that it's not metaphorical. They have to accept it as metaphorical because they fear that the result of doing otherwise would be some sort of radical moralism or legalism, right? It's easier to allegorize because it, 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 doesn't, it doesn't demand as much of us or box us into sort of a moralized faith. And I'm the first to say that we do not inherit eternal life by our works, that it's grace alone that saves us. But I want to say something really important. This is going to come into play as we go through these parables. God forbid that morals would be so uninteresting to us when a huge segment of Jesus' words are precisely about morals. Read the parables. They're about morals everywhere you go. Jesus himself says, go and do likewise. If Jesus doesn't intend to tell his people how to live, then why should we follow him? The point of the parable is not some sort of legalism, so that in order to be like the Good Samaritan, we as Christians should go and stand by the side of the road and just wait for someone to get beat up so that we can help them. It's about loving the Lord our God with all of our heart and with all of our soul and with all of our mind and with all of our strength and loving our neighbor as ourselves. It's about loving God so much and being intent on loving God so much that it might affect our moral life, that it might change our hearts, that it might put our love into the action of loving our neighbors, of whom, again, there is no limit. Does the story, as we think about it this way, does this, this parable scare you a little bit in terms of how modern it sounds? I, I like, I, as, as I go through life as a pastor, I, I see an entire culture of people who are really quick to ask the question, hey, how do I receive eternal life? But then they're slow to act in love to their neighbor. They're slow to understand mercy and compassion. And most of all, they are slow, slow to embrace a moral life. Our fear of earning salvation has led to the idea that Christianity is a religion concerned only with what one believes and not what one does. Or more importantly, who one is. How shallow and tragic is that? That is not the belief that Jesus consistently talks about in the Gospels. To believe in God is to be further transformed into his likeness, to put that love into action. The priest and the Levite, by the way, they were religious people. They were faithful people. They knew compassion and mercy in theory. I think if you talk to them, they would say, yes, I believe in compassion and mercy for my neighbor. But then they couldn't put that love into action because it wasn't in their hearts. I think the scribe that's asking Jesus these questions believes in God in his heart. But just to believe in God in our heart is not life with God each and every day. Life with God is a relationship of love that forms completely who we are and it reflects that love to other people. And I think what Jesus is doing in this passage is he's using this parable to try and transform the scribe from a man of knowledge into a man of action and morals. If I can illustrate, right before uh, I got married, I was living in St. Paul. Um, my roommate uh, and I were living together, and he convinced me to join him for a walk late one spring evening. We were walking on uh, Sleepy Street, not much going on, pretty quiet. And we were alarmed to see a block or so ahead of us, a man was running after a woman, throwing stuff at her, and screaming unthinkable 
profanities at her. The woman ran wildly away. We could hear her crying and screaming. And eventually the man turned away. He got in a car and he drove away. Um, we were naturally concerned, right, and a little shaken to see this. But, and, and I'm not too proud to say that I probably would have assumed just let the situation be if it was up to me. None of my business. Okay, the guy left. But my roommate again um, convinced me to follow her and to make sure that this woman was okay. So we caught up to her a few blocks away as she stood on a street corner, tears in her eyes. Um, she had bruises and cuts on her face. She had a bruised leg and a sore wrist. Uh, her name was Camille. She was 43. She'd been visiting her old boyfriend for a few weeks, and it had turned violent in the last couple days. He had had too much to drink. He started demanding money from her, and when she resisted, he beat her, and she feared for her life, and she ran out of the house, and that's where we saw her. Our hearts were full of compassion and mercy for this woman who surely uh, had made uh, her share of poor decisions in her life. That was clear. But we wanted to help her in, in any way that we could. So as Tim waited with her on the street, I ran back home to get my car and my wallet and my phone. I grabbed a small little leather-bound Bible that I had been given by a friend. Tim and I called a few of her family members who were in the area, but nobody was there. Nobody picked up. So we decided that no matter what, she needed a place to rest, a place to, to go come the morning. She couldn't stay here. She had no money. She had no credit cards. She had nothing. So we got her a hotel room for the night, and we got her a train ticket up to Duluth the next morning so that she could be with her parents, the only safe place that she really had in her life. And as we pulled up to the hotel very early in the morning at this point, she asked, why would you two kids do this for an old beat-up lady? To which we both answered, something like, because we love God, because God loves you. Handed her the Bible. She wept openly on my shoulder in my car, and we prayed for her and asked for, for power, the, the powerful transformation of, of Jesus in her life. We watched her walk into the hotel. We never heard from her again. Never, don't know if she used those train tickets or not, but... Her memory has stayed with me for a long time. I'm thankful that my roommate's eyes were open, even when mine maybe weren't. I share that because I want to encourage you towards something that might seem a little strange for me to say. Um, I want to say, don't worry about being the Good Samaritan. You cannot orchestrate those scenarios any more than I could have orchestrated that meeting with Camille. That may seem uh, in poor taste to say, even on Martin Luther King weekend, but don't try and solve all the racial issues or the poverty issues and the immigration issues or the homelessness issues in our country or in our city. You're not that smart. You're not that powerful. I hate to break it to you, but God is. So if I can put it plainly, your call as the church as people of God, is not to stand by the side of the road waiting to be the Good Samaritan. Your call, your charge, is to wake up each and every day with one thought on your mind and one prayer on your lips. Just love God with everything that you have. 
and ask him to help you put that action, that love into action with your neighbor for his glory, not for yours. Without God's spirit in and through me, without a love for God, I walk by that woman. I do. I don't see her as a neighbor. I decide it's too much to face. It's not my problem. There are too many unknowns. It's too scary. Don't want to do it. But if I spend each day loving God with all my heart and soul and mind and strength, I'm compelled to go to places that I wouldn't normally go. I begin to walk through my day with my eyes open about what God might do. So as you walk the road of life, love God with all that you have, and he will bring you to places of need, I promise you. I promise you. Your choice then is to love God with all your heart and, and, and take those opportunities to love your neighbor. I'm confident even on, on MLK Weekend that Dr. King might agree with this. So one last question. What are the gospel values that are being communicated in this parable? We're going to ask that question each and every week in this series. And I think it's this. Gospel people are intent on loving God with all that they have and never, ever limiting their definition of who their neighbor is. And I pray that many, many people might step up with passion to solve these huge issues that we see in front of us, racial divides and poverty, poverty and homelessness. I keep thinking about those who don't have homes on a day like today. What does that look like for them? God help them. We need passionate people who feel called to do this, but more so. I pray that people might respond to that call because of the love that they have in their heart for God. That's when real transformation can happen. Gospel people make themselves available to others out of their love for God, never forgetting that it is God who helps and heals and breaks down every barrier. So my encouragement from our text today is remember his first call to us. Love me with all you have. Love me with all you have. So let's set our hearts on that this morning. Let's do so by joining in a prayer of confession together. I'll let you know um, when it's time for you to join me in this prayer of confession, and the words will be on the screen. Would you pray with me? The psalmist models a transparent faith with these words. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my thoughts. See if there's any wicked way in me and lead me in the way of life everlasting. We too, O God, express our longing for your leading with our own transparent confession. Would you say this confession with me? Merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart and mind and strength, We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. In your mercy, forgive what we have been. Help us to amend what we are. 
and direct us to what we shall be, so that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your holy name, through Christ our Lord. Amen. This is the message that we've heard from God, and we proclaim to you that God is light, and in God there's no darkness at all. And if we walk in the light, as Jesus is the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sins. Hallelujah. Would you stand for our closing hymn? A wonderful way for us to send ourselves out into the world that God has given us today. Hymn number 715, called as Partners in Christ's Service. <laughs>